0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We find this pattern in the Bible. God predicts something he's going to do. Then he does it. And then he explains what he just did. If you've read your Bible for any period of time, you've seen that pattern. So always in the Bible, we don't just have what God does or what God did, but we have words couching what God did. Words and actions together. So when you're reading the great salvation story of the Old Testament, which is the Exodus, First, God appears in a blazing bush to Moses to tell him what he's going to do for Israel. Then through Moses and the great mighty plagues in the land of Egypt, God does it. Delivers them out of slavery where they had been for some four centuries. And then the rest of the five books that make up the beginning of our Bible, which we call the Pentateuch, are an explanation of why God did that. Predicts what he'll do, he does it explains why he did it. Later in Israel's history in the Old Testament, of course, because of their disobedience to God, there were two exiles, Assyria destroying the north, Babylon taking the south into captive. And what was the pattern in that great act? Again, it was an act of God in sending these nations to bring judgment on Israel. God long predicted through the prophets that He would send Assyria and Babylon Then he did it, and then if you read the minor prophets, much of the prophetic writings of the Old Testament are then explaining why he did what he did. So always we have God's actions in the Bible, but they're couched in words. And what that suggests to us is that God's actions don't interpret themselves. God, of course, is working today. Like Jesus said, my father's been working, he's working now. And that's true today. God is working. He worked this week in your life in many ways. But those actions, those activities, what you saw this week in your life, they don't come with built-in explanations. Usually what we do then is we add the explanations. We try to figure out, well, why did God do that? And of course, if you live any time as a Christian, you realize how hard that can be. You're diagnosed with some disease. It's out of left field. It's a complete surprise to you. Perhaps you're younger than you should be being diagnosed with this. And then immediately, as a Christian, your mind gets to working, well, why did God allow that? Why was that a part of His plan? Maybe it was because of this sin in my life or this characteristic that God is trying to refine. Maybe it was because I sinned. Or maybe it's because God has some purpose for me and he's preparing me for that purpose. Or maybe it's that Satan was involved like he was in the case of Job. But you realize those are just guesses? Which one is it? Is it any of those? You don't know. (laughs) Because when God acts, which he surely does, we need words to explain why he did it. Otherwise, we're just guessing. That's what makes our lives a bit complicated. But that's what makes reading the Bible so fun, so enjoyable, is that you have a record of so many things God did together with the words to tell you this is why God did it, to set a pattern for us, to help us to see what kind of a God He is. Because if you throw the Bible away and just look at the events of life, you'll just have guesses and everybody guesses differently. But in the Bible, God tells you what he's going to do. He does it. He explains it. It is a great part of the joy of reading the Bible. You say, I wish God was still doing that. I wish he would still tell me what he's doing. And of course, in some churches, there are certain kinds of so-called gifts where God will tell you exactly why he's doing what he's doing. I understand the draw of that. I just don't think that's really happening today. But it's actually better for us to have a Bible full of explanations than to have play-by-play explanations in all the events of our life. It makes room for faith. We're given a Bible so that you'd look here at what God has done in the past, see why He has done it in the past, learn what sort of a God He is, and then when He's acting in your life, just trust Him. That even if you don't know the purposes, there are purposes, and they are good purposes. And it is the good purposes of God in all of life that is the theme of our passage today as we come to Galatians chapter 4, looking at the first seven verses. By way of reminder, Judaizers, who were false teachers, had snuck into the churches that Paul had helped to plant. And the Judaizers were offering an explanation for something God had done, which is that God had given the law through Moses to the Jewish people. And the Judaizers interpreted what God did like this. God gave the law to His people so that, here's the interpretation, we all agree God did that, here's the interpretation, the reason He did that was so that His people, by keeping the law good enough, would be righteous before God. And Paul said, I agree with what happened, the law did come through Moses to the Jewish people, and I do not agree with that interpretation of why. And because the Scriptures here are inspired, this is God, through Paul, providing for us an explanation after the fact of why He did something He did, in this case, why He gave His law to the Jewish people. So let's look at this, Galatians 4. This is Paul. He's speaking when he says us and we of the Jews who are under the law before Christ came. So, Galatians 4, starting in the first verse here. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Here's the point of that, verse 3. In the same way, we, Jewish Christians, we also, when we were children, that's before Jesus came, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And here's God's purpose. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So... You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's a lot to explain here. This passage begins, I mean that. So Paul is actually not telling us anything new. He is simply providing more explanation for what he said at the end of chapter 3. Especially in verses 24 and 25, he said, so then the law was our, Jewish Christians, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that, here's the purpose, here's the interpretation, why do we have a law? In order that we might be justified, not by the law, not by keeping it, but by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. These Judaizers had followed Paul and polluted his message everywhere that he went. And they were offering not only the Jewish world, but even the Gentile world, an interpretation of something God had done. God had given his law there through Moses to God's people. And the Judaizers said, we have an interpretation of why God did that. And this is it. So that anyone... Jewish or Gentile, you want to become Jewish, anyone can, by keeping the law well enough, become righteous before God. That's why, they said, God gave the law. And Paul, in the entire letter to the Galatians, who've been affected by this heresy, is telling them that is not the reason God gave the law. It's just not the reason for it. And there are many people today in a very similar circumstance. They're kind of somewhat connected to Christianity. It could be you. You know some of Christianity, and you think ultimately what this Christian thing is about is that God's given us all these rules in the Bible, like treat people well, golden rule. And if we keep them well enough, basically... We'll be right with God. We'll go to heaven. Isn't that the point of Christianity? And the Bible itself is telling you today, no! Are there rules in the Bible? Yes. Was a law given to Israel? Yes. Are the purpose, is the purpose of those so that you could keep it good enough and get to heaven? Absolutely not. That's Paul's point. So what Paul wants to do is to provide an alternate explanation. If Christianity is not about keeping these rules, then why does Christianity have rules? Or, in Paul's case, if the law wasn't given so we could be righteous, then why do we have a law and why does God say keep it? If that's not the whole point of it. And Paul is continuing the point he's already been making, which is this. The law, don't think of it as a way for you to be saved. Think of it as a way for you to be prepared to be saved. The law, he said, was a guardian. It was merely given to Israel for a temporary time to prepare Israel for real salvation, which is in Christ, not the law. So there's a time of preparation. And then the fullness of time is when Christ comes. And that is what the law was all about, to push you to Christ. We saw that last time. And we're going to continue seeing that in this passage. And we're going to look at this passage under those two headings. You have the time of preparation. He says when we were children, when the Jewish people, it was before Christ came. He says we were children. And then they grow up. Christ comes in the fullness of time. So a time of preparation and the fullness of time. The time of preparation... Is right here in the first three verses. This is what God intended the law to be for the Jewish people, to prepare them for something better than the law. Look at these first three verses again. I mean that the heir, and he's using this picture to talk about the Jewish people, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, before Christ came, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The picture that Paul is using here, we saw it last time. It was given in verse 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came. He's saying that we, meaning the Jewish people, now Jewish Christians, we, before Christ had come, were under the law, and the law was a guardian to us. The picture that he's taking here, I'll just refresh your memory because we talked about it, is of an ancient Greek or Roman patrician household. That just means a wealthy household. In a wealthy household at that time, one or more of the children in the house Their well-being would be looked for not by the mother or the father, but it would be by someone called a, here, a guardian. There would be someone, a pedagogue, if you will, a guardian who was in charge of making sure that the child grew up well. It wouldn't necessarily be the child's tutor, but it'd be the one who would take the child to the tutor, make sure the child gets back from the tutor. So this guardian had rules that would be enforced on the child. The guardian was basically parenting the child. That's how it worked in ancient society with wealthier families. And he is saying that is what the law was. That is the purpose of the law, to be that kind of a guardian. So when we get to our passage here, and he says the child is, quote, under guardians and managers until this date set by his father, there's a question of the exact meaning of those words. I know guardian appears in the ESV again there, but it's actually a different word from what was used in chapter 3. So we have three terms here, but they all seem to be referring pretty closely to the same thing. The point is that in those ancient households, somebody was in charge of helping raise that child until the date set by the father, until the minor became a major, wasn't a minor, wasn't a child anymore. The point he's making is that in those households when that child was under the guardian, That child didn't look a lot different than what they had also at the ancient times, a slave or a servant who might have been in one of those households. Because the servant or the slave did not have full freedom, which is why we're glad that practice is abolished in the West. That slave or servant did not have full freedom. They had to submit to rules imposed upon them. Well, that's exactly what was happening to that child. The child had a list of rules, that the child had to obey. So he says, even though the child technically as an heir was like owner of everything, this child's going to inherit this entire house. The whole thing's going to be his. He's the owner of everything. But at that time, as he's young, as he's a child, he's got all these rules. He has to listen to the guardian. So it seems like the guardian's in charge. He's not in charge. He basically functioned as if he were a slave in that household. He did not have freedom. He had rules imposed upon him. Now, to get the point of this picture Paul's using, you could just think, why in a patrician household way back then would they impose all these rules on this child who's the heir of the whole house? Was it because the parents were saying, listen, son, you'll inherit everything one day, only if you keep all of our rules perfectly. If you do everything we require of you in these rules, then we will love you. We will bring you in our family. You'll be the heir of everything. That was not the reason. That was not the reason for the rules in a patrician household. It was assumed the child's already going to get everything. It was not to keep the rules in order to be loved, in order to become the heir, but rather you already are the heir. That's why you have the rules. Otherwise you'd be out on the street. You're in our house with the rules because you're an heir of everything. Neither did the parents impose these rules out of cruelty. It's just like today. So here's a parallel to today. You're raising children and we are Americans. We love freedom as we should. Your children are not free. (laughs) None of us are completely free, but your children are not free. Your five-year-old is not free to drive your car. He lacks that freedom. Is that because you do not love your five-year-old child? No, but you have put that rule. In fact, government has in this case, but you're enforcing that rule in your household. You shall not drive my car. You do not give your debit card for an unlimited spending spree to your 13-year-old daughter you don't do it. She doesn't have the freedom to use that money. When you die, she'll get an inheritance. She'll have that money, but she doesn't have the freedom to use it yet. Your children have to come home at a certain curfew. They don't have the freedom to stay out past that curfew, at least not without consequences. So your children, and if there are teenagers here, sometimes you feel this way, I understand. It's like slavery. (laughs) You're not absolutely free. And you know what? You're right. You're right. That's the point of the illustration, actually, that the child in the household doesn't differ that much from a slave because there are rules. But the point Paul is making is in a healthy household, and it's not always healthy, I understand, but in a healthy household, do you keep the rules in order to get your parents love? No. No. That is not the point of the rules in a healthy household. You get the rules because your parents love you. I know it might not feel that way if you're a teenager, but you get those rules because your parents love you and they want to, this is important, prepare you through the rules for a time yet to come, which is adulthood. And the rules in this life, we parents are imperfect. It's not always this way. But this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to prepare you through rules that, yes, make you like a slave. You don't have all your freedoms. But we're trying to prepare you through rules so that when the fullness of time comes and you are adult, an adult, you're ready. Isn't that how rules work or should work? That is the point right here. The heir, as long as he's a child, is not any different from a slave. Just think of the nation Israel as if they were a big family wandering through the desert. They had come to Sinai. God had given them house rules. And of course, your house rules don't apply to everybody else's house. They apply to your house. So when God gives the law through Moses, it's to his people It's not meant to apply to everyone forever like the Judaizers claimed. It's meant to apply to the nation Israel. That's why so many laws in the Old Testament, as we've talked about, are very specific to that time and place. They wouldn't even work here. But they were the house rules for Israel Verse 3, he actually explains this. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, when we were wandering the desert, planted in the land, went into exile, came back, the whole time we're under the law, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And I'm not going to say a lot about those principles because they're going to reappear next week. Elementary principles. The only thing I'm going to say about them now is it's the same in this case as being under the law. Because if you look at the house rules of Israel, so many of them did have to do with the basics. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. They had to do with diet, what you eat, what you bring in, and washings, the physical, the external. A lot of the law had to do with all of that. It was a good law. It was good house rules. But of course, it wasn't universal. It was specific. It was earthy. You get that when you read the Old Testament? Now, what the Judaizers mistakenly did, as many children have done, is they interpreted their parents giving them these rules as, if I keep these rules well enough, my parents will love me. God gave me the law on Sinai, thought the nation Israel, so that if I work hard enough and keep all these rules, at least in an external sense, I come home at the curfew time, I don't get involved with the wrong crowd. I do all the right stuff externally. If I do that, I'm an heir. God loves me. I have righteousness. I achieve salvation. It was never the purpose of the law. And it's not the point of house rules in a family either. I know there are some houses, whether through fumblings of the parents that happens or just through misunderstandings of the children, there are many households where the children feel like, if I am quiet and obey and do everything right and don't mess anything up like those kids down there, then my parents love me. But if I mess up, eggshells, nope, not loved. And sometimes parents can feel that way. If if you kids stay quiet, keep our rules, come home in the curfew, don't embarrass me in public, give us a good family name, then I love you. I withhold my love till then. That's a dysfunctional family. God's family is not dysfunctional. And God's not like that. As a father to his people, he gave them the law because he loved them to prepare them for the good things of adulthood. Not so they could earn his salvation. And that was exactly the mistake of the Judaizers. But, Paul continues, when the fullness of time had come. And with that line... He moves us from that first period, time of preparation, under the law, to the point of it all, the fullness of time. This is full adulthood. Look at verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now to understand this part of the passage, you have to be comfortable with what we call a mixed metaphor. Metaphor. Metaphor is just a word picture. That's what we've been talking about, patrician household. But now Paul is going to mix his metaphor up a little bit. Some of you, maybe type A's, are not going to like that so much. You want things to be neat and tidy. Too bad it's not neat and tidy here. So he's going to mix his metaphor. Basically what he does is, since he said in verse 1, that an heir, that was the picture, an heir, a child heir in a patrician household, is basically like a slave, Now what he does is he says, well, for all intents and purposes, let's think of the Jewish people not just as a child heir who's like a slave, but let's think of them as if they really were a slave. Because there is a sense in which being under the law is a kind of slavery. It's a restraint of freedoms. It's a bondage from which the Jewish people needed freedom. So there is a mixed picture. On the one hand, you have a child heir growing up to adulthood. On the other hand, you have a slave receiving freedom. Those are the two pictures. Otherwise, you'll get confused in this passage. So, we just considered the first, child growing up, adulthood. Now, Paul is shifting his metaphor, and his focus is on the Jewish people under the law were basically slaves. But now in Christ, they become full sons and free. The fullness of time has the same effect, whatever picture you're thinking of. So let's consider this fullness of time here. When exactly was this fullness of time? It was, quote, when God sent forth His Son. Now we need to pause for just a moment because thinking of this phrase, the fullness of time, requires us to think about God's purposes in history. Now you could think about this. God sent His Son when he chose. He could have sent him anytime he chose. Imagine if in the days of Adam and Eve when they had sinned and plunged mankind into rebellion, when the fall had happened, imagine if that promise given them that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, imagine if that was fulfilled in their own children. Perhaps they thought when they had Abel, who was a righteous man, that he would be that seed who would crush the head of the serpent. Imagine if Abel was the Christ. History would look a lot different. Maybe the Christ would then have already come back because it happened so long ago. All history would be different. We know that's true. If there was only one generation from the fall to the coming of God's Son, the Christ. But that didn't happen. Why? It wasn't time. It's like God's purpose was still in bud. It hadn't blossomed yet. The flower was still hidden in there. It wasn't time. You know, God could have sent the Christ in the days of Noah. He was a preacher of righteousness, but he was not the preacher of righteousness. And the bud remained. Or God could have sent his son in the days of Abraham, a man who had faith, but not the man in whom we have faith. It wasn't time. David, of course, had the most claim of anyone in the Old Testament to be the Messiah, and in so many ways seemed to fulfill the expectations of what a Messiah would be, but then he received the promise that someone, one of his descendants, would sit on his throne forever. That's the Messiah, later, because it wasn't time yet. Of course, then God's people rebel, and they go into exile, and the cries come out, when is the Messiah coming? Oh Lord, how long? How long? And the reply through the prophets was, not yet, not yet, not yet. Finally, the people return from exile. They weep because everything's been destroyed. They start rebuilding, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the temple, but it's not like it was. And the people cry out, surrounded by enemies, how long, how long? Not yet, not yet. The history at the end of the Old Testament, there's then a prophetic silence, no prophets. And at that time, Israel is just being kicked around as a tiny nation, soccer balled around from one mighty world ruler to another. Alexander the Great conquers, spreads the Greek language. The Messiah, the Messiah, not yet. Here come the Romans, 63, they take over Palestine, they take over the Greek empire They build massive roads for some purpose. Now the Messiah? No, not yet. The Jewish people are squished under the thumb of iron oppression by the Romans who can come and kill their children anytime they want and do. And they cry out to God, how long, O Lord? And God says, not yet. Now just an echo of the prophetic voice. Suffering follows suffering Israel sees little hope, Zebulun and Naphtali still sit in darkness. Not yet, not yet. And then, verse 4. The fullness of time came. And the watchers of the ancient bud, after so many thousands of years, it's open. And there is the flower. In the fullness of time, not before the fullness of time, in the fullness of time. God is not slow concerning his purposes, but he is patient. He's willing to wait. And you may be, in the same case, wondering in your own circumstance, God, how long until relief? How long until the suffering at least lets up? I'm not even asking for it to all be fixed, but just to let up enough to be tolerable. How long, O Lord? And you're watching, and the bud is like this, And you're awaiting how long, and God's reply oftentimes is, not yet, not yet. You say, if I were God, I'd do it now. You're not God. In the fullness of time. God has purposes in history, and he enacts those purposes exactly when it's time to enact them. And if you got your dirty little fingers in on his plan and were able to change things, you just ruin everything. And so many times you have to hear, Not yet. He knows how much you can take. He'll be there with you, but it's not yet. But in all of history, returning now from our brief aside here, in all of history, all of history groaning, how long, how long? But when the fullness of time had come, then and only then, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The center point of all history, the reason the Roman roads were built, the reason Alexander spread the Greek language, the reason for everything that happened, the reason that the law was given to the Jewish people at Sinai, The reason for it all was to prepare the way for the fullness of time to push everyone like a big funnel to funnel everyone down in their focus to this one event, the sending of God's own son into the world, the sending of Christ. It happens not before, but on the date set by the father. This is the adulthood for which the Jewish people were prepared by the law. You can see here that the son was sent as a representative. He was a representative. You see that in the ways he's described. He was born of a woman. It's actually rather fitting because, of course, he was born of a woman and God uniquely. I don't know if that's what Paul has in mind. He was born of a woman. Mainly, he was a human like us because he's going to be our representative. He was born under the law because Paul's talking to the Jewish people. Jesus needed to be born under the law. In order, why? To redeem those who were under the law, to be a representative. Jesus was a Jew. You know that. He was also just a very good Jew. It's like he told John the Baptist, he had to do what he did to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was very interested in fulfilling even the house rules of Israel. He was the perfect child in the home. Moses was faithful in all his house, yes, but Christ was more faithful. He kept the household rules. He fulfilled them completely. He honored the Father like Israel never did as a human in their place. He was circumcised. He kept the festivals. He kept the dietary restrictions. He kept the curfew the Father set He did everything God required without any failure. He made clear that these household rules were coming to an end. Some of the things he said, the gospel writers will comment, thus he declared all foods clean. It was clear that these rules were coming to an end because he was fulfilling them. But in his day, Jesus was still under the law and he fulfilled the law as a good Jew. He kept the law of Moses perfectly in the place of those who could not keep it. So what happened is that when the Jewish Christians like Paul himself, after 1,500 years of rather unsuccessfully trying to keep the house rules, saw that God in the fullness of time sent his son a perfect Jew who kept the house rules and received all the blessings promised to Abraham, they were Pushed by the law that said, look, I've been condemning you for 1,500 years now. I've just been saying, wrong, 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 so that you despair and now look. You see him? Right, 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 right. You want righteousness? Stop looking here. The law was just a guardian. It was a steward for this very time. This is what it was all about. So when the fullness of time came and Christ was sent into the world, the law, as a good guardian then, backed up gave a bow, motioned to Jesus, walked out of the room. But the Judaizers were trying to bring the law back in, and Paul said, no, no, he's gone, he left. He was just here to point us to Jesus, and now Jesus is here. Have faith in the Christ. The law was all about him, and now he's here. Every Jew in that day, every Jew today who places faith in the Christ, Jesus, at that time, they move immediately from a slave-like status under the law to full adoption and freedom as sons. That's what he's saying here, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And there are some, you know, Jewish Christians today who trust in Jesus and then decide for cultural reasons to keep some elements of the Mosaic law That's fine. Totally fine. Great. It's cultural. Wonderful. But you can't bring it in and say, you have to. No, no, no. That's the problem. You don't have to. The guardian is gone. Verse 7 puts it perfectly. So you are no longer a slave trying to keep a law that is crushing you, lacking your freedoms, constrained by the house rules. Nope. You are a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. You don't have to keep the rules to become an heir. You are an heir. The Judaizers wanted to remain slaves. They wanted to make new Gentile converts into slaves. And Paul says, there's no reason. Look, when you open the Christmas present, then you throw away the wrapping. You don't keep the wrapping and throw away the present. The law was just the wrapping, and here's Christ the present, so let's have Christ. The Judaizers said, but did you see this wrapping? (laughs) Yeah, we're done with it. We have Christ. He's what all the law pointed to. Now, as we come to our closing, we, of course, are, at least almost all of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. We are not the we in this passage. We're not Jewish Christians. We're Gentile Christians. There are parts of this passage then don't apply directly to us but you can find us in here in many ways and here's one just in verse 6 because the experience given of Jewish Christians in verse 6 it's your experience and my experience as Gentiles as well when we trust in Christ and because you are sons God has done another sending God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father I have sadly seen many Christians walk away from the freeness of the gospel into systems of religion that are Judaism. They're Judaizing. They have regulations, sacramental systems. It's going to be Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, but really any other system of religion that sets out a list of rules and says, "If you keep them well enough, you're righteous." I've seen so many people who have the gospel set right before them, here it is, it's free. Trust in Christ, you have it. And out of that freedom, live your life who then feel like that's too light, too easy. There are some who are just drawn to the sense of order in some ancient cathedral or the sense of order in some system of worship. They like to have the sense of certainty That if I keep these rules, God owes me salvation. There's something comforting in that. I'm not just at the mercy of God, trusting in Christ, jumping into eternity, but instead I've checked off every box I've done with the priests or whoever, the rabbis, whoever have told me to do, therefore I'm good. And you would think that anyone with that background who comes to the true gospel clearly laid out in the New Testament would say, I'm free, I'm free, sadly. Just like in the day of the Judaizers, it's still a pool saying, just faith in Christ. That's a rather uncertain foundation to base everything upon. Would God really give rules if he didn't expect you to keep them so you can get to heaven? So come here. We'll give you the rules. You keep the rules. Some people just like tradition so much that even if it's just man-made commandments, there's still a sense of comfort, that at least these are very clear rules of what I wear and what I eat and what I do and how I live and how I worship. And Paul is saying, no, no, don't bring the guardian back in. In Christ now, we are free. We also, Gentiles though we are, we are sons. We have grown up. The fullness of time has come. We have so many commandments in the scriptures, but to us, they're just joys. They're not burdens, they're not crushing, they're not dictators, they're joys because we're children, because we're heirs of eternity. We want to keep these rules. Enjoy that freedom, Christian, and do not allow anyone ever to offer you an interpretation of God's actions, in history or now, that would enslave you again under some system of morality.